If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, and we're going to be reading in verse 2. If you'd like to follow along in the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, I encourage you to do so. Those of you who are seated in the ones in the front there, uh, we're working on getting all the pew racks underneath installed too and getting all the Bibles set. So this Sunday, as you've heard, our Advent theme is love. And as we come to this transfiguration account, Jesus is sharing his glory with the disciples. And I want my prayer for today is that our hearts would be enlarged as we consider the Father's love for the Son, and as we obey his command in this text, listen to him. So that's my prayer, is that we would see and hear this Advent theme of love in this transfiguration text. And I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 2 of Mark 9. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, since they were terrified. A cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. Then they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replied. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things? And be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did whatever they pleased to him. Just as it is written about him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing. Would you please be seated? Last week we focused on the paradox of peace. That Jesus' messianic mission had a lot more to do with reconciling sinful man to God than the uh, idea of conquering the Romans and bringing peace with a sword. He would suffer as the suffering servant. That paradox of peace included the reality that to find the kind of life and peace that Jesus promises us, we are to set our minds on the spirit and not on the flesh, to have our mindset on God's concerns and not human concerns. Now, since that concept of peace largely dominated the theme of last week's message, I did leave a very interesting part of that message unaddressed last week, at least relatively so. In fact, one of the people here last week came to me in the foyer and said, well, 
What about 9-1? What about 9-1? So if you have your Bibles open still, just look at chapter 9 and verse 1. At the end of the text from last week, Jesus says to the disciples, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. What does this mean? That's a good question. Uh, In fact, I shared with this uh, individual last week that in the history of Christian interpretation, there are many views on what Jesus exactly meant. I'll share a few with you and then give you what I believe is the interpretation of 9-1. That is, there are some that say that this promise was pointing to the transfiguration. And I'm going to come back to that at the end as the view I believe, at least in most proximity, makes sense. That some would see the Son of God in power before they tasted death. There are others who believe that this had to do with Jesus' crucifixion, uh, his resurrection, his ascension, uh, the Spirit come upon the disciples at Pentecost, and even Jesus' judgment of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 when the Son of Man would judge Jerusalem for crucifying the Messiah. And there are those that uh, because of the length of time that happened, they lean towards that latter view. Let me cross out what I think are a few views. One would be uh, the crucifixion because most of the disciples weren't there. In fact, only John is recorded as being present. And then all of the disciples were alive Um, at the resurrection. They were all alive at the ascension. They were all alive at Pentecost, saved Judas, of course. But then some time had passed, so some interpreters like this AD 70 idea, that Jesus would come in power uh, in the clouds, so to speak, not fully touching down as a full second coming, but a, a coming of sorts in power to sit over the nations and to judge Jerusalem as the Son of Man. And this view has on its merit one thing, and that is some of them had died. That is, some of the disciples had tasted death before AD 70 happened. Another thing that kind of relates to this view is it would be a little silly to say some of you will not taste death this week. If the transfiguration was the interpretation, those who like that later interpretation, they say, well, it'd be a little weird to say some of you won't even die this week until you see the power of the kingdom. But after what Jesus had just said, I'll bet some of them were thinking it. You're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. They were probably looking at their actuarial tables and wondering what's going to happen. But if you flip this on its head, the time is not the significant thing. The fact that is significant is some of you. Do you catch that? The time The six days is not the significance. The significance is some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God come in power. Well, who are the some of you? Peter, James, and John. The others would die without seeing this glorified, transfigured Christ. This promise, this down payment of fulfillment of his coming again in power and glory. And this is the kicker for me. I know we've talked about a few possible interpretations. Here's the kicker. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, after this statement, the transfiguration. In every gospel of those three, the transfiguration follows this statement. 
So I believe Mark had the transfiguration in view, that this is the the immediate view of the Son of God come in power. They got to see the glory of Christ. So this is the fulfilled promise in my estimation. Mark 9, 2 and following is the fulfillment of the promise just six days later that some of them would have the privilege of seeing the glorified Jesus. You see at the transfiguration, as one person has put it, the veil over Jesus's divine glory is lifted and the inner circle of disciples are given a glimpse into his true glory, glory that will be revealed after his resurrection and even more fully when he returns to judge and save. It's also interesting that this saying, again, it comes right before the transfiguration. And furthermore, Peter seems to have the transfiguration in view when he writes in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. He says, We did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming, you hear it, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When was that? He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from him, from the majestic glory, saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Do you hear the connection points to the transfiguration? For he received honor and glory, excuse me, verse 18, we ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. There it is. I believe Peter saw this as the power and coming in the majesty of Jesus and says this is the down payment and the promise of his future coming. So it has a kind of a both and fulfillment right away. The promise is fulfilled. William Lane writes, quote, the transfiguration was a momentary, but a very real and witnessed manifestation of Jesus's sovereign power, which pointed beyond itself to the second coming when he will come in power and glory. They got a glimpse. Fulfilling his word to the disciples just a short time later would have been an incredible encouragement to them. Again, remember what he had just told them six days prior. If you want to come after me, you'll have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. These bewildered disciples were just beginning to comprehend the road of suffering and sacrifice that all Christ's followers must travel. And so seeing the glimpse of Jesus and his power and glory would have been an encouragement to them. But furthermore, remember to whom Mark is writing, suffering Christians in Rome. And this would have been an encouragement to them as well, that Peter, James, and John were eyewitnesses of the power and glory of Jesus Christ. I pray that God will give us today, in this text, a greater glimpse, a greater vision of the sovereign and glorified Jesus, dazzlingly brilliant and wrapped in unapproachable light with clothes so white that brand new white clothes treated with all the Clorox bleach money can buy will look dingy and dull compared to him. Some of you out there that like clean things love that. Amen. Amen. Friends, we need to thank God for the vision revealed to these apostles 
on the mount because we, like they, will experience afflictions. We must carry our crosses and follow Christ as they did. And we will, if we truly live for Jesus, have all manner of evil said about us. A servant is not greater than his master. We too will face death. We experience the death of our beloved saints with whom we march this weary road. And without a vision of hope in the glorified Jesus and the promised fulfillment of the kingdom of God come in power, I fear our hearts would give way too soon. We need this vision of the transfiguration today. Let us find in this account the remedy for spiritual myopia. That means short-sightedness. Let's ask the Lord to open our eyes and give us the clarity of that man on the second go-around when he saw things more clearly, where we see the vision of the glorified Jesus as a pledge to us that glorious things are in store for the people of God. Jesus will come again in power and in glory. Those who are dead in Christ will rise first. Then those of us who are alive and remain will meet them in the air. I want to see Betty Page just right there. I'm going to come up right beside her. We will join with them and we will be glorified too. Colossians 3, 4 says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We thank God today for the promise that some of his disciples got a greater glimpse of Jesus, enough to propel them to and through their own suffering and gave them the confidence with which they could declare themselves to be eyewitnesses to his majesty and glory. We'll deal with some of that next week with the theme of joy and we consider the eyewitness John and what he said in 1 John 1 next Sunday. But that will come, this idea and the confidence to be able to write Second Peter and 1 John, it will come with a good deal of reflection. It would mean even more to the disciples after Christ arose. But in the moment, however, Peter is so terrified that he doesn't know what to say. But he says it anyway. (laughs) He gives what I'm calling the frightened suggestion. The frightened suggestion. Pick it up back in verse 4 of Mark 9. We read, Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, note that term, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. The understatement of a lifetime. (laughs) Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Here at verse 6, because he did not know what to say since they were terrified. I love what the CSB study Bible says about verses 5 and 6. By the way, we have, I think, five or six CSB hardback study Bibles in the book nook. We got a deal on them and want to give them to you for the same deal. $20 for that and $20 for the For the Love of God or $35 for both. If you don't have a good study Bible, go get a study Bible and read along with 
this um, uh, For the Love of God reading plan as you're studying. Here's what he says, uh, the study Bible says in verse five and six. He says, Peter proves that when you don't know what to say, it's best to keep quiet. Can I get an amen? All the husbands in the room, all the wives in the room, when you don't know what to say, as the old saying goes, one of the lessons of history is that nothing is often a good thing to do and always a clever thing to say. (laughs) Nothing is always a good thing to do, excuse me, is often a good thing to do and always a clever thing to say. But Peter just had to say something, didn't he? But in what he says, he fails to recognize Jesus as greater than Moses, greater than Elijah. He puts them on the same playing field in a way. Now, don't be mistaken. Elijah, Moses, they had both been eyewitnesses to the glory of God on a mountaintop. Both were faithful servants of God who suffered for their obedience Both were rejected by the people of God. And between the two of them, they represented nearly all of the history of the Israelites to that point. But the law and the prophets bore witness to one main thing, the coming of Messiah. Jesus was the climax. It wasn't that Jesus was another good teacher. Notice again, Peter calls him rabbi. It's that Jesus was the Son of God. And the Father will make this lesson unmistakably clear to Peter, James, and John. Look with me at verse 7 as we see the Father's commandment. Verse 7 says, A cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved Son, Listen to him. Do you hear the commandment? Listen to him. Unlike Jesus' baptism, where Jesus received this same word of commendation privately, here at the transfiguration, the Father makes sure that everybody knows who's listening that Jesus is the one to be listened to. He is the beloved Son. And in the context of what has just taken place less than a week ago, this commandment, I believe, brings a greater emphasis to two things— One, that Jesus had told them he will die. He will suffer at the hands of the scribes and the elders and the chief priests and die and rise again. Listen to him. And the cost of discipleship. If you would follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. Listen to him. Listen to what he said. Obey him. Understand him. And then there is the significance scripturally of that phrase. Listen to him. It is especially significant when you think about Moses being present on the scene, because it was Moses who wrote in Deuteronomy 18 and 15, the Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. And here it is. You must listen to him. Moses knew we're not on the same playing field. Moses knew there was one to come and you would listen to him. And then, as if to make obedience to this commandment extraordinarily simple to understand, for a visual, so to speak, a visual reinforcement of what the Father has just said, we see in verse 8 that all of a sudden, there ain't nobody there to listen to except Jesus. Moses, where you at? He gone. (laughs) Elijah, I'm looking for you. He gone too. They're gone. 
Verse 8 says in the ESV, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. I love that. Jesus only. Solus Christus. If you hear a message given on the Old Testament that could have just as easily been preached at a Jewish synagogue, then the preacher has likely missed the point. The law and the prophets bear witness to him. God says, listen to Jesus. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says in verse 1 of chapter 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Listen, Jesus will get the final word. He always gets the final word. And he will in today's message too. But before we get to that, I just want to briefly consider the last four verses of our text today. From verses 10 through 13, we read, They kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. Then they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah has, excuse me, Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replied. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. So seeing Elijah, okay, the disciples, Peter, James, John, they've just seen Elijah. And then you have Jesus giving all this rising from the dead talk. And it gets the three of them thinking of the end of the age. That's when they anticipated the resurrection would happen. And so they asked this question to Jesus. Jesus, if it's all about you now, and Elijah is just gone from the scene, why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? They knew. The last chapter of the Old Testament pointed to that happening in Malachi 4 and verse 5. Scripture says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so Jesus responds. And to be perfectly honest, his answer is a little confusing at first. It's a little hard to comprehend. But basically, Jesus says, Elijah does come first to inaugurate the beginning of the end of the age. But he says, look what happened to him. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, the fulfillment of prophecy like Malachi 4-5 might have a depth to it that you haven't considered. If John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah and got treated rather poorly... Could you disciples be missing how that foreshadows, catch it, foreshadows the suffering of the one to whom Elijah points? In a similar way, you disciples, you're thinking about the Son of Man imagery and Daniel and all this end of the age stuff. It fails to incorporate considerations of texts like Isaiah 53, in which Jesus says, it is written 
that the Son of Man must suffer. And if Elijah has come, meaning John the Baptist, and he was mistreated, then don't be surprised when the one for whom he was to prepare the way also must first suffer before he is exalted. And so the disciples, they would meditate on these things. They held this vision in confidence until after Jesus had risen from the dead. And then, perhaps only then, did they begin to piece it all back together. All that Jesus had promised, all that they had seen, it all came together. And they would spend the next decades of their lives proclaiming the glory of Jesus at great cost. And as Peter said in his second epistle, we would do well to listen to what the apostles have to say in the New Testament. It is a prophetic word more fully confirmed than we could ever have imagined. It was confirmed by the very word of God himself. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So as we close today, on this third Sunday of Advent, allow me to point us to the words of Jesus as the final word for this message. I want to leave us with this powerful thought from John chapter 15 and verse 9. Jesus said, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father declared, This is my beloved Son. And then he says, Listen to him. So, brothers and sisters, listen very clearly. As the Father has loved the Son, so has Jesus loved you. Abide in Christ's love. Now, I want to take note of the comparison. Jesus says, I love you like the Father loves me. So how has the Father loved Jesus? I want to share with you just a few ways. These come from Charles Spurgeon's evening devotion from March 18 and his devotional morning and evening. I got a timely text this week that one of our elders was doing his devotions from morning and evening this past week. Listen to these ways the Father loves the Son. The Father has loved Jesus without beginning, without beginning. He has loved him for eternity. And so Jesus also loves his members with an everlasting love. Write down Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. You can trace the beginning to human affection. You can easily find the beginning of your own love for Jesus, but his love for us is a stream whose source is hidden in eternity. Secondly, the Father loves Jesus without any change. In, in a similar way, we should find rest that Christ's love for us is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If your faith and trust is in Christ alone, you could be riding a spiritual high or you could be in a deep, dark valley and Christ's love for you is unchanging. 
Not only is there no beginning to the Father's love for the Son, no change in the Father's love for the Son. You could see this one coming. There is no end to the Father's love for Jesus. And there will be no end for Christ's love for his people. Spurgeon writes, rest confident that even down to the grave, he will go with you. And that up from the grave again, he will be your guide to the celestial hills. As if that were not enough. The father loves the son without measure, without measure. And Jesus bestows that same immeasurable love on his elect. The whole heart of Christ is dedicated to his people. He loved us and gave himself for us, scripture says. His is a love that surpasses all knowledge. We have an immutable Savior, a precious Savior, one whose love is without measure, without change, without beginning, and without end, even as the Father has loved him. Amazing love. How can it be that Christ, my God, would die for me? I want to close in doxology with this passage from Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Hear it, in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, our hearts can't even begin to fathom or wrap our minds around the immeasurable riches of your love for us in Christ. The words you spoke on the mountain, this is my beloved son, carry weight even for us because if we are in Christ, we are the recipients of this eternal love. Father, I'm reminded of scripture in Romans that says that you demonstrate your love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would make Christ crucified so evident and meaningful to us today. Lord, for those who don't know you, who have never placed their faith and trust in Jesus, may they run to Jesus, fly to him, find in him all of these rich blessings of love and peace and joy, reconciliation to God. Father, may someone here today place their faith in Christ and in his death on the cross for their sins. Lord, there are those here today, we are gathered as a church of believers. And so, Lord, I pray that we would 
see Christ crucified and be reminded of his words and take them to heart as the command comes, listen to him. May we hear Christ's words from Mark chapter 8 that we must take up our cross and follow you. So Lord, help us to learn the way of sacrifice and suffering. Help us to learn to follow you even when it's difficult. And Lord, may we find the grace of a vision of the glorified Jesus in the accounts of the New Testament as that which propels us in hope to the full, final coming and power and glory of Jesus Christ with whom we will live for eternity. Lord, we are feeble. Our hearts are heavy laden. We are afflicted. Scripture says we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. But Lord, I pray that we would find that in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.